Greetings, God's beloved. Welcome to the Bible Study Podcast from Reformation Lutheran Church in Las Vegas with Pastor Matt Metavellis and myself, Pastor Jason Adams, along with our friends. This week we're finishing up our study on the letter to the Colossians as we hear the promises of Jesus for the universe and the fullness of God in Christ. Thanks for joining us and make sure you follow along with us on Facebook and YouTube for our online worship, conversations over Bible study, and more. God bless you. Thanks for listening. Let us open in prayer. Holy God, you are with us through this word. In the power of the Holy Spirit, you knit us together. Open our hearts and minds to hear you speak today for healing, for peace, for grace and forgiveness, for your mercy. We need it now and always. Help us to hear your voice. Speak wisdom through uh, everyone here in this group. For those that listen, draw them into this family of faith as well. And bless us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. 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 All right. So I think everybody um, who's in on the call was here uh, last week. And we talked about uh, the Christian life uh, being a matter of death and what? Death and resurrection. Yeah, death and resurrection. So, um, already the author starts getting into some of the ethical implications um, in what we read last week. And then um, the author is going to start getting into some practical ethical implications uh, in this next section. So somebody wants to read chapter 3, verse 18, and um, all the way through and read the first verse of chapter 4. I can read. Okay. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong. And there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair. Because you know that you have also a master in heaven. Three relationships are being discussed here. What are those three relationships? Parent to child. uh, Boss to worker. And humans to God. Oh, interesting. Um, Yeah, absolutely. I I would say that humans to God, that's – I wasn't even thinking about that, but that's a good – that's a good reading. No, so we'll say four. And what's the other one? Yeah, I husband and wife, right? Oh, husband, husband and wife. wife. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think that's a really good point that um, in these, uh, what are called the household codes that show up in three places in the, uh, in the New Testament, in these household codes, a fourth relationship is being added, which is really interesting when you think about the structure of the ancient world, because the home was the primary place of worship. Your, uh, your quote unquote church was in your house and each house would have kind of their own gods and the way that the uh, father worked in the household was kind of as the priest. So um, the, in the time that this was being written, it was actually a legal office called pater familias. And the pater familias was, the, um, was not just the head of the household, not just the quote unquote breadwinner, but the, uh, the father who was um, in charge of uh, the family, father was in charge of slaves that might have been um, working in the household, um, and the father was kind of like the last court of appeal. Now, fathers had such control over their children in the Roman Empire that even when kids were older and had like civic jobs, fathers could discipline them. Fathers could send them to jail, um, and though it was rarely used, fathers did have the authority um, to uh, sentence somebody to death. So the reason when you read a lot of, excuse me. We, we still hear of this happening in some places uh, in the Middle East today. Now, are these people living in um, extended households? Where grown children and their wives and their and their own children are there, so it's grandchildren. You know, it's you're multi uh, generational. Likely, I think yes, could be. And, and so and the, that's just it. what the father says goes. That's right. it. <clears throat> so that and that goes to him having control over adult children and you know their his sons, their wives, their children. So usually it's not um, grandpa said I can have this cookie and it's like no mom says you can't but that's today's right. world but back then right. grandpa said you could have a cookie you could have it yeah yeah sorry I had to go be Potter familias and settle a dispute in the household um <laughs> so yeah it's it's just really interesting in the uh Aeneid by Virgil if you ever get a chance to read it okay um that one thing when Troy is burning, Aeneas goes and saves two things. His father, who he carries on his back, and his... Um, what are you doing with my comet? It was on the floor. All right, we'll look at it later. Actually, you can look at... Okay, you can look at it now. You can look at it now, but don't, don't hurt it, okay? <laughs> Sorry. Um... So he carries his father and he grabs the household gods and runs out of the city. And for this, he's called pious. Um, and in, um, in Roman history, there was somebody who earned the nickname of the surname pious 
because he actually went to court to defend his father's name. So in the ancient world, being pious meant listening to, obeying, and taking care of your father. So the father was kind of a God figure. So already, I think, Maxine, you've put your finger on what's revolutionary about this is that God actually stands. So, no, go watch your show. Thanks, buddy. Yeah, go watch your movie. God's not only involved in the family, God also stands outside the family. And it, and he uh, gets the technical word is he's he uh, relativizes the power of the patrofibilias um, or um, I guess you could say it more simply as God is the one in charge, not the patrofamilias, whether or not the patrofamilias believes in God. So, um, yeah, that was a that was a really good. You got me ahead of myself, Maxine, but that was a really good observation that I, <laughs> I had quite put together. Whenever I hear that term Potter Familius, I always think of John Goodman in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Oh, yeah. That was his favorite uh, way of uh, delineating his authority. He'd say, Potter Familius. Potter Familius, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That yeah. movie adapted from Homer's The Odyssey. Yeah, absolutely, with the uh, with Squish and the Frog. <laughs> so, man. To be to be able to teach that again, uh, to be able to teach that again. Uh, so you have these three relationships, and God is involved here. Uh, so let's. Um, I, I think it's going to be helpful to just break all these different relationships apart and, and talk about them. So, what is the what is the code for husbands and wives? Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Mm. This is kind of a common thing. We, we hear it in some other places, too. It's in 1 Corinthians. It's in Ephesians. It's in Titus. It's in 1 Peter. Um, maybe in, in a little bit of a different context. But we, we hear that, especially in our time, and go, oh, no, 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 no. Hold on now. But what is this? What is this really talking about here? That's what it was in Bible's days in marriage. Even that's though that was, yep, our society doesn't exist like that anymore. Mm -hmm. Does it say that that the husbands have no obligation to the wives? <laughs> no, they should love them and not be harsh to them almost a um a mutual respect mm -hmm. reciprocal obligation but also it's um it and it's the wives not not submitting like how negative the word submit is but to uh to respect the husband as the head of the household as the the one who leads the um, like leaves the family. I, I think about, um, like having the, I, I guess some of these people might've been Jewish and how they have the Sabbath and the, the father making sure that everything is, is correct for the Sabbath and, and following all the, the rules. 
and he makes sure that his family is doing that and the the wife respects him as much as you might respect a, your rabbi or your pastor mm. yeah Eileen's shaking her head. <laughs> you know, I think Paul wrote this to the people at that time. I don't think that means yeah. what it looks, what it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, to us, to our modern ears, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, and especially why, and and, and we're gonna we're gonna um, we're gonna do exactly what Eileen suggested. What's the status of the people listening to this letter? Who's the audience? Is it largely people in power? No. They're out, they're out in the sticks, right? They're in the rural town up there at the base of the mountain, kind of far away from, from the action. and Yeah. And they don't know this stuff, maybe. Yeah. Are, yeah. Are they... Uh, <laughs> you know, most of these people are not powerful people in, in society. These are not, you know, these are not magistrates. These are mostly not nobles. Um, there might be some wealthy people there, but uh, these are not uh, powerful people. So could this letter be possibly written to um, a woman who came to believe in Christ when her husband doesn't. Right. Uh -huh. And so why would that be more? It's common. It's very common. Uh, 10 years of chaplaincy. Uh, it's very common to have uh, uh, one member of the household uh, be a believer and the other a non-believer. But why in the ancient world would this be a problematic relationship if a, a woman uh, came to believe in Christ. So she got, she got this whole new community of friends. And uh, would it be problematic for her to come home and the husband gives a kind of a command? And then she says, you know what? I heard in church that there is no male or female, <laughs> right? What, what would be problematic about that for the community? Well, the 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 husband may um, prevent her from going to church and and socializing with these people. Exactly, and he might start asking some questions. What are you doing in there? Mm -hmm. What are these weird uh, itinerant dudes from Palestine uh, doing, walking around, having secret meetings in people's houses, upsetting the social wife? order? Yeah, with my wife and and, uh, and Tiberius's wife across the street and some of our slaves. What's going on, right? So, you know what? What do you think would happen to the church at that point? Wouldn't wouldn't last long. <laughs> no, right? You'd uh, you can read. Um, there's a a letter from um, a guy named Pliny, who was a uh, provincial governor, and he wrote to the emperor at the time, hey, I'm getting all these complaints about a group of people called Christians. And they get together and they have these really weird love feasts. I don't know if what they're doing is illegal, but a lot of people are complaining to me about that. 
Um, right. So this this is the kind of world that the Christians live in. So with all this in your heads, do you think that this was the kind of advice that flows from the theological teaching about what has happened in Christ? And if you do, it's totally okay, right? And I'm talking specifically about wives, be subject to your husband. Be in a subordinate position to your husband. Right, this is, this is where it's useful. Is this, is this something, I'll put it this way, is this something that Jesus died for? I think this is much more about how we can get along and be in, in life-giving relationships with one another. Yeah. Yeah. Because... Back then, though, the husband was the one that was at home teaching his wife and children the Jewish law. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so... Um, the wives are being admonished to love their husbands as they would God, Christ. And there might have been some houses where this was true, right? There might have been some Jewish households where it was the father who, um, you know, was was reading Torah. Might have been some house. They might have been some Jewish households where this would have certainly applied, right? Continue to keep those connections alive. They're life-giving. I think that's the thing. Like, people would have known this. This was the social order before. So uh, Paul, whoever the author of this letter, is saying, we're not here to change that. In fact, this relationship that we have with God models this kind of respect for one another. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So so this is to kind of – this kind of enhances the model that's already – in place enhances it with with god i mean because yeah. i think the the key phrase here is as um as is fitting to in the lord as is fitting yeah. in the lord yeah yeah which is which is a way of saying that god doesn't want to tear apart the social order and right and if remember, you're, we Remember what just came before this. It's all about this new life in Christ, God's chosen, holy and beloved. Now, now here's how you live that when you get home. It doesn't mean you're free from the reality that you've lived in for so long. You're still part of this community. You still have responsibilities. So maybe maybe to place it in that context helps a little bit. Yeah. And the fact that it's mutual too, right? As is fitting in the Lord. Right. Obviously, that leaves some interpretation where you can say, well, if my husband wants me to commit an act of blatant idolatry, um, I don't know if I can um, agree to that. Right. It gives you the space to say, I'm not going to do that. And then it says, husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Whereas uh, I'm going to read to you right now from Aristotle, uh, which is one of the first recorded instances we have of a household code 
um, for the pagan world. Hence, there are by nature various classes of rulers and rules. For the free rules the slave, the male the female, and the man the child in a different way, right? Who's in charge? The man all the time, right? All possess various parts of the soul, but possess them in different ways. For the slave has not got the deliberative part at all, right? The slave can't reason. The slave can't make good decisions is what I was talking about. The female has it, but without full authority. So the female can reason, but it's just not as good as a man's reasoning, right? And we all know that. This is philosophical according to Aristotle. Well, the child has it, but in an undeveloped form. This is, um, and it's helpful to read the Bible against the backdrop of the pagan world at the time, right? This is straight paternalism, right? The the, The fully grown man is able to deliberate. And the fully grown man is able to make good decisions. And therefore, women, children, and slaves need a fully grown man around all the time so that they don't veer off into error. Um, And as we're reading this, we're not getting that sense of Aristotle. We're getting, okay, so the wives can be subordinate to the husbands, uh, but also the husbands have to be subordinate to their wives in a certain way uh, by loving them, never treating them harshly. And in Ephesians... Um, that will be made even stronger by saying you've got to love your wife the same way that Christ loved the church. Love the church, yeah. And Christ loved the church so much that Christ died for the church. So here it's present. The language isn't as strong, but when we read this with Ephesians, we get the sense that, okay, wives, you have to submit to your husbands, but husbands, you have to die for your wives. Now, I understand that I am a white male going through all this, and um, I do want to share that this language can still be problematic um, in granting legitimacy to the idea that women just have to submit, or also problematic in that, well, women just kind of submit and men have to die for them, which gives um, the real agency to men, which has always kind of historically been the problem of male-female relationships, that men are given agency and women are expected to give up agency. So I want to clean this up a little bit, but I don't want to clean it up too far where you can't smell a little bit of the stink on it. So (laughs) on this question of husband and wives, um, uh, I'll, I'll just stop there and invite any further comments or questions. I would wonder about, um, you know, men who maybe had to go out and and die in battles and things like that. Where did that leave these families? Obviously, um, would the woman then become the authority of the household or how would that work in the community? Within the Jewish law, the brother of the husband that passed away is supposed to take care of the wife. Sure. So the wife had no authority. It was left up to the male in the family. Yeah, but if, but if she was didn't have one, yeah. Or if the people were not Jewish, they. Yeah, it's it's tough to know in wider Roman society. There were 
evidences of women having a lot of authority and a lot of power and not needing a man around. But usually you had to be Kardashian level rich and powerful in order for that to be true. Um, <laughs> um, but for um, average middle class women, it really just did depend on the culture of the um, of the particular region. So as a woman, you were better off in that area. Um, the more um, urban you were, and you were definitely better off the more wealthy that you were. Um, and we definitely see that in the case of the New Testament. Women like uh, Lydia and Nymphia, who we'll learn about later, um, they were women who, uh, as far as we could tell, didn't have husbands, women who were business owners, um, and they were women with um, substantial resources, and the churches were also probably meeting in their houses, which uh, is probably, in the eyes of the wealthy and powerful, another strike against Christianity. Like what? What's this going on um, in all these women's houses? And and by the way, Christianity has been called by historians feminism's greatest triumph, just because of the way. Um, uh, and it, 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 it's breaking now in certain segments of the church. But Christianity throughout its history was always a women's club that, for some reason, uh, was ruled by men. <laughs> <laughs> you definitely see it, um, that women are gathering people together, they're opening their houses, they're doing all the organizational administrative work, uh, but it's like Paul and Timothy and Titius and uh, Epaphras who are running around, you know, as the, um, as the people talking, and as they're more and more uncovering, uh, there were some women who went around um, and did preaching and teaching work, too. So, um, it, it's, it's fun to read the New Testament to you know we have what we think about back then um but to be able to read these texts and have the real social world opened up to us is so fun. yeah the context context is key yep let's real quickly go to the next relationship uh to um children and parents what's the relationship look like there Parents are in charge. Parents are in charge. Huh? Obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. And like we heard for 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 women, children were under complete authority of the father's power. In fact, children could be uh, sold into slavery, forced to work um, as a laborer. A parent could the father essentially could do anything that, that he chose with the, with the children. So that's yeah, it was pretty important, important to hear. Do not, do not provoke your children or they may lose heart. Yeah. When, when the society around them said, do whatever you want to your children, it's up to you. That That's kind of countercultural, isn't it? Yeah, we didn't we didn't even um, have a lot of literature imagining that children had their own like conscious lives until really the 19th century. Huh. Yeah. But it, if they're if they're hearing anything that um, Aristotle wrote about that, the, the children, they aren't yet fully formed to um, 
come up with their own thoughts and ideas. That's why they need to obey their parents. They aren't there yet to make their own decisions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, yeah. having a, a teenager in my household, um, they certainly mm -hmm. think they know uh, enough to make plenty of their own decisions. And um, <laughs> that can sometimes cause conflict. Yeah, but but that's the fear. But you don't you don't treat children in a way that they literally lose heart or lose spirit or lose um, lose passion. Um, it's a uh, it's a it's a really interesting take on what your what your job is because it's a world where children were thought of in terms of their uh, output, <laughs> their output of labor and their future earning potential, um, either by marriage or by, uh, or by status. <laughs> and they should be teaching children by example. And um, if they're gonna teach the children about God's love, then they have to live in God's love and share God's love with other people. Good. That's the wise way to go about it for sure. I couldn't imagine being a, a child in, in these times and my parents are like, you know what? I don't see your potential for marriage or marrying up or having a, uh, a, you know, getting a good husband. So we're just going to take our losses now and sell you into slavery. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, but I mean, even think, think back just a hundred years in this country, even if you lived out in a rural area, you lived on a farm and having kids meant you had more workers on the farm. Right. And, and mm -hmm. that, that was often the way, maybe one went off to join the military. Maybe one went to uh, become a clergy of some sort and, 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 you know, all the rest stayed on the farm. So we, we, you know, we're not so far separated from that kind of thinking, especially when it comes to kids. Yeah, it's all so recent. Yeah, most Actually, of, uh, most of developmental psychology is from like, from like the sixties on, <laughs> like we didn't even study or think about, um, it's 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 a fun field for that reason, but most of the stuff is so new. We didn't even think of children having their own like emotional or 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 mental worlds. Yeah. My own father grew up in that kind of a, a setting where they had a dairy farm. There were thirteen children, eleven who uh, grew into adulthood, and yeah, that's why they had so many to to help uh, help work on the farm. God bless them. <laughs> yeah, I I couldn't imagine. I'm reading a series of novels by Jane Smiley where they uh, takes place in Iowa, and each chapter is a year, and uh, it's it follows one family and the kids as as soon as they're young as you know they're Noah's age, and the father's like, get up, four a.m. <laughs> you're out there, you're milking cows, you're you're helping, mm -hmm. you're keeping the place running. Mm-hmm.
Get I don't wanna. Don't care. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Gee. Yeah. So when you had a whole lot of, um, when grandma and grandpa had a whole lot of children, it was big uh, parties on holidays. Yeah. So those times were probably nice. Yeah. I but, miss it. Yeah. And so you see here, um, there is, uh, there's a reciprocal relationship too. Um, that you that uh, children are not just an extension of your authority, um, that you have responsibility to them. So moving on to the third relationship, and this is the one I think um, that has historically been the most problematic, um, the relationship between slave and master. Um, what it, does that relationship look like? Well, in, in a similar way, slaves, servants were were not considered human under the law. They were property. Uh -huh. um, no such thing as a code of working conditions. Uh, slaves, when they were past their useful uh, use by date, they could be thrown out to die. Uh, if a slave had a child, that that child belonged to the the master. And, uh, and I, as I, you know, we, we hear this story of a, a servant uh, of the, the centurion being healed in the story. That's why it's so, so strange to hear this, this centurion who cares about this slave as if a member of his own family. That seems to be extraordinarily compassionate um, compared to the way the society operated. Yeah, um, but, you know, one thing that I will say about slavery in the ancient world was that it was incredibly fluid. Um, you could, you, you could, you could move in and out of that. Um, yeah. uh, you know, the lowest tier were, would be if you had been, um, if your tribe had gotten on the wrong side of the Romans when they brought you back as a slave to either work in the mines or work in some kind of industry where you were expendable, uh, that was pretty hard to get out of. Uh, but a lot of times, um, that's how, uh, that's how, if you were a philosopher, if you were a scholar, uh, you hired yourself out as a tutor or a slave. Yeah. Um, Cicero had a slave that his uh, family bought very early in life, uh, who became um, his close friend and invented what we consider to be shorthand right now, um, who uh, would take notes of all uh, his, his speeches and was very much kind of like a, an employee, uh, but a very close partner. So um, it worked. It, it was a hierarchy that worked all the way up. So if you were in a bigger household unit um, and you were a slave in charge of other slaves, uh, you know, Downton Abbey fans, this is uh, this is where you can kind of conceive of how these relationships um, might have worked, um, where there was definitely a relationship of subordination, but um, the relationships um, were were incredibly close um, at times. And uh, yeah, and, and Pastor Jason did mention uh, that being a servant or a slave in the ancient world was different um, than what we experienced in the modern world, uh, not just in the United States, but probably most egregiously in the United States. Um, and and uh, 
the longest um, in the United States, um, even if you count Russia, but Russia liberated their serfs in 1861. It took us to 1865 um, uh, of slavery based on race that you that you could get out of, but it was um, it was incredibly difficult. And then you could never move to a uh, normal status in society. Even in the north, if you were a freed slave, you'd be called a freedman, and you um some freedmen in the north uh became fabulously wealthy some freedmen in the north um owned businesses uh but they probably could not run for congress <laughs> they probably could not attend churches um with white worshipers so there was um you know when when we talk about slavery in our context there was stratification i'm bringing that around i i don't know if any of you've heard of howard thurman um who was a um, he was a civil rights leader the generation before Martin Luther King, um, and he was a, a he was a, a, a preacher. Um, and when he was uh, sitting with his grandmother, he asked her if, if she wanted to read the Bible, and she said, "No, Paul. That's all that they would read to us on the plantation was Paul, and they would read passages like this that said, "Slaves obey your masters in everything, not only while being watched." in order to please them, right? This was all they got. They didn't get Jesus healing the centurion's servants. They didn't get, um, they probably certainly didn't get the prophets. They probably didn't even get the part of Paul that said there is no slave or free, right? Um, this was pretty much all they got, just a steady diet of household codes. Um, so uh, this passage has been used. Um, all these have been used, I think, to create a lot of harm. Uh, but I think this is the worst culprit. So my question is, how do we answer that? Do we ignore this? Is there anything redeeming about this? Or is there anything that we know about the time or about the rest of the letter that might help us understand this? You can look at it as if in working on any job, if you're working to please other people, that's one thing, but you're supposed to be working to please the Lord. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's the, the whole the whole thing we read in, in all of this, I think, is that uh, – turning ourselves outward for others. It's not about what is owed to me, but what do I owe my neighbor? I think that's a lot of that is in there. Um, particular to to slaves, it's, you know, uh, it, it's, it's upholding that mutuality of relationship within the confines of the social construct that was there. Mm-hmm. And there's promise, too. You will receive a reward. Mm-hmm. And they're told also there is no favoritism. So in the Lord's yes. eyes, they're the, they're the same as their masters. Mm. Yes. Yeah. A little bit, little bit of revolutionary language stuck in yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> right? This is not Aristotle. One... 
the slaves are being addressed as if they have rational decision-making ability, <laughs> right? You could choose this. If not agency. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you do have some agency. Uh, Self-control was was lifted up as a, a desirable quality in the ancient world, right, Pastor Matt? Suffer Sunni. Yeah. So there, I think there's a little bit of that in all of these as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So you you get to receive an inheritance. Uh, the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong has been done, and there is no partiality, right? Um, also, part of this is this this is what would happen, and it still happens, right? Um, making an appearance of being a good worker compared to the reality of being a good worker. Um, I was thinking of that Seinfeld episode where George left his car at work. So his boss would come in, it, it would come in every morning and see his car as the first one there. And then <laughs> uh, see his car as the last one to leave. Yeah, that's, that's the opposite of what you want to do as a Christian, right? <laughs> Create the create the uh, appearance that you are um, a hard worker without actually being a hard worker. Um, and you won't be able to get away with what, what it is you think you'll be uh, getting away with. So that's um, an idea too. That's a great way to look at it because, you know, in each of these relationships, um, you have a role to play. And there seems to be this message of don't take advantage, whether you are the servant or the child or the wife or the father do not take advantage of your role, but work to, uh, to maintain uh, peace and order and, and Christ centered relationships. Yeah. Which is the fact that God can operate even in these relationships, which, um, which are, you know, I don't want to say sinful, but they're they're worldly relationships. They um, do not. None of these relationships optimally produce human happiness. None of these relationships can give salvation. Right. And Aristotle's operating under that assumption. He, he's not talking about salvation. He's talking about a well-ordered soul. Right. So if the if the man is in charge, the wives will be obedient. The children will grow up right. And the slaves will be under control, right? That's the, uh, you know, some theologians would say that's always the kind of like, quote unquote, gospel of uh, quote unquote empire, right? That it's about order, that it's about control. Um, what the author can do here is say, look, there is order and control, but that's not the good news, but the order and control is not itself the good news. It can put, the, the author points forward to real, authentic good news in the inheritance that's coming, uh, harkening back to that death and resurrection, and especially, right, in answering some of these opponents who wanted these Christians in Colossae to engage in all of these strange practices that gave you an external marker that you somehow didn't belong to the world, right? That was a lot of, um, 
that was a lot of, and, and this is the literature on this is massive. This was a lot of the debate about keeping to some of those Jewish uh, purity rituals. Circumcision, you know, uh, wearing your hair in certain ways, eating this food, not eating that food, right? That's an outward way of showing that you don't belong, right? And there were also other cults um, who encouraged all these different practices so that you could demonstrate, oh, I don't belong to, um, I don't belong to this world. I belong to God. I'm special. And they wanted you to do it externally. Now, to do that in the ancient world, which was obsessed with order, which was obsessed with control. If all of a sudden a bunch of your slaves um, were, um, were walking around with all these different like purity markers, or all of a sudden your, your wife and your kids wouldn't join you at the you know, festival of Athena um, and eat the food that had been sacrificed to idols. If all of a sudden that stuff would start happening, would it place these uh, itinerant preachers that came and, and, and preached the, circ the circumcision of Abraham in danger? No, it would have placed those people engaging in those practices in danger. So what these household codes are in the New Testament are pastoral advice to be safe in an at times hostile environment for people who are oppressed, right? And so for people that are actually doing the oppressing to use these is, is not the intent. And furthermore, what this entire letter is teaching is that in this death and resurrection, you have an identity which is internal. And to the extent that it's external, it's not how it's external, but in whom it is external. And in whom is your identity external? Answer in Bible class is always Jesus. If you're a Christian, in who is your identity external? The Messiah. In the Messiah, in Jesus, right? So I think this speaks directly to the kind of Christian that want to say, hey, I'm a Christian. Is my music Christian? Are my movies Christian? Can everybody see the fish symbol on my car, right? They want to create all these external signs to show that they are a Christian, but um, the, uh, the song, I think, has it right. They will all know we are Christians by our love. There it is. Got that right. one. Huh? <laughs> Sing that song in your head, being these kinds of uh, household codes. Um, because I really think they are coded messages. Um, a lot of the letters and certainly the rev the revelation is a coded message to Christians saying, you are in a difficult place, survive, but yet know that you have life in the midst of all of it. Yeah. So that's my attempt to redeem this text. I don't know if I've succeeded or not. Yeah, I think that's very helpful to take it as pastoral advice for people living this new life in Christ, reframing the relationships that we have with a perspective and an understanding that this is because of Jesus. And um, 
and yeah, there is some stuff in there that that is a little revolutionary, a little countercultural, but that's helpful. So then we get into the next piece, yeah. Mm -hmm. Further instructions. We need more instructions, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Does someone want to read? Uh, read two through five. Go ahead, Eileen. Two through five, okay. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim it, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. So I continue. Go ahead and read verse 6. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Yeah. I love that. I love that callback to Jesus, right? You are, you are the salt of the earth, right? Let your, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, right? And, there, um, and there's more what I was talking about in verse 5. Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders with wisdom, um, by him. Making the most of the time or seizing the moment. And it's that same word in verse five that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Parapateta, uh, which also can get translated follow or walk. This is walk around. So this is in all of your daily business. When you're running your errands, when you're going around, um, do it in wisdom do it wisely um, and make the most of the time. And this was something that the early church had a perennial problem with. Uh, people who were just not patient with uh, Jesus, wanting Jesus to come back, or people that wanted to prove their Christianity by, you know, uh, getting in front of the regional governor and saying, you know, you're condemned to hell. Uh, I'm a believer in Jesus. Come get me. Now I know I'm going to heaven for sure. <laughs> they, the church had to always kind of put a damper on that kind of um, that kind of behavior. So, um, any other uh, any other thoughts? Paul's asking for prayer for himself too. Any other thoughts on this passage? I think well, it goes. I Go ahead, Eileen. Okay. Go ahead. Okay, it reminds me of uh, our politics today when they have to try to get along with everyone. So it fits. He's full of grace, but to be seasoned with salt. Yeah. That's a good question. What might it mean to... Uh, let your speech be gracious and seasoned with salt. Stick to it with what you believe, but do it nicely. 
But intentionally as well, right? That that salt that brings out the flavor of food. Let let your words have meaning, not just not just bland nothingness. Um, be wise, for, conduct yourself, you know, with with some understanding, and go ahead and get out there and use use what you've learned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But and and like you were saying too, it's like yeah, seasoned with salt, so it's not bland. I mean, you you want to uh you want you want it to be you know intentional conversation and you but you want it to be seasoned and you don't want to have too much salt on it because then people are going to turn off from it because it. too much Can't salt is bad too yep so it's got to be just the right amount of seasoning but how, and what what's interesting to me is how do you get to that well as in all of Paul's letters he exhorts people to be centered in prayer mm be praying. That's that's going to be putting you in that frame of mind that you can go out and conduct yourself wisely, can speak with intentionality and purpose. Yes. If you're not centered in prayer, how are you going to do that? Yeah. And and I love, too, that when he talks about conduct your speech, he talks about his own speech. And he says, pray for me that I get doors open to declare the mystery of Christ um, and then he said, and then it's connected to the way that they go around and talk too, right? Paul's not a celebrity preacher um, that we have, uh, you know, glutting the airwaves in America right now, right? Paul is not doing this. Everybody thinks that Paul is great, or he's not doing that so everybody will look and see how great every, you know, how great the message is. He's doing this on behalf of the people so that, that what they find life in can be magnified and they are partners with him. Um, I think that's really powerful too, that Paul affirms that. And then Paul's going to name a bunch of his partners, isn't he? Yeah, absolutely. But on him, on praying for others, we're also supposed to in conversation, listen to what the other person's saying. A lot of times we don't do that. We have a message we want to get it out, and we don't really listen to what the other person has to say about it. Yeah, the two-way street, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's that's good, Donna, because he even says here it's conversation. Let your conversation be full of grace, not your speech. Not you know, not it's not one way. It's a conversation, so it is two way, two ways. Speaking and listening. Yeah. And quite literally, it's hologos. Let your, your word. Well, we got a couple minutes. Let's wrap it up. Yeah, let's close it out. Well, I love that the, the final greetings and benediction. Should I read it? Yeah, go ahead. Tychius will tell you all the news about me. He's a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose so that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. He's coming with Onesimus, the faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They will tell you about everything here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, 
concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, greets you. These are on, the only ones of the circumcision among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. He's always wrestling in his prayers on your behalf so that you may stand mature and fully assured in everything that God wills. For I testify for him that he's worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you read also the letter from Laodicea and say to Archippus, see that you complete the task that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Some yeah. some names there, some familiar names we might know and some new ones probably. Yeah. It's a roll call. Yep. There's which, one, which, which names did you recognize? Of course, Luke. Yeah. Barnabas. Uh, Barnabas. Mm hmm. Mark. Mark's a big one. Epaphras, we've heard of, and uh, Onesimus. Epaphras, yep. Yeah. I think Epaphras was in uh, Philippians. Yep. Onesimus is the who he wrote the letter of Philemon to. When he says, is one of you, is he saying non-Jews? That's what I was thinking. He denotes that some are, are of the circumcision and some are not. Mm -hmm. um, this uh, notes that one Isthmus is actually from Colossia. Mm -hmm. What about uh, in one of you, it's a believer in Jesus Christ? Could be that yeah. too. Yeah, it could be that too. Could be from the town or could be of uh, fellow Gentiles. God fearers. Yeah. And I, I think when he calls out some of these people as being of the Jewish faith, and then others that he says that are um, of, he's one of you. Um, I do think that it's he's calling out people who are Jewish and then people who are Gentiles. Yeah. And and so going back to this, maybe um, with these these rules for Christian house or you know, for Christian households, these are new Christians, not necessarily Jewish people re, um, who became Christians. Yeah, these are. Yeah. Yeah. Epaphras is also in chapter one, verse seven. He is the one who brought the gospel to Colossae. Yeah. So he's their, uh, he's the, uh, he's the mission pastor who started that church. So yeah, he's he's one of you. He's you know he's from there. He he started the church. Of course, you want to hear from him. Uh -huh. So we hear from Pastor Emily, Deacon. Yeah. yeah. So 
why is there controversy as to whether Paul wrote this when his the last sentence is, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand? Uh, the controversy comes from a lot of places. Um, I, I think some of the criteria make sense. I think some don't. Uh, the first is writing style. Um, just the, the syntax is a lot different than the other letters. Um, and then the problem with that, it becomes um, a psychological argument about whether people write the same way. And you have, and, and the people have done it, uh, looked at writing samples from people's lives and see how much variation there is compared to how much variation there is uh, in the disputed and undisputed. Um, uh, the second criteria is that um, uh, Colossians and Ephesians have have kind of like a delayed eschatology instead of an imminent eschatology, which means that in the early letters, Paul thinks that seems to say that Jesus is coming right back in the later letters. It's more of like what we heard in this letter where it's like, oh, well, you know, just kind of it's coming. Just everybody relax. Right. Like it's a delayed um so people are like, well, that changed. So obviously this must be somebody else writing this in the name of Paul. Um, that's the criteria I consider to be the most silly um, because, you know, people do change their minds about this stuff. <laughs> Paul could have thought that Jesus was coming right back. And um, after the brutal ministry career he went through, he went, he probably thought and reflected like, well, maybe it's not coming tomorrow. Maybe something else is at work here. Uh, and maybe, maybe we ought to learn how to act in the meantime. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, well, I mean, obviously he's in jail. He keeps yeah. referring to himself as being in chains. So, yeah. so he, so it's not during his his early um, treks where he was, a, you know, a free man. He's older now, and he's been imprisoned, and so. Yeah, that can how you're treated in prison and and what your circumstances are can certainly uh, affect the way the way you write. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and here's the thing, too, about Paul. I think Paul is actually more susceptible to changing his mind because Paul is a man of activity. He is not a seminary professor. He is not a scholar. He's not like um, Origen or uh, even Augustine. Right. Those guys that that uh, um, write that most later Christian theologians, yeah, they do some um, they do some pastoral work, uh, but the majority of their work is writing confirmation curriculum. I kid you not. So they they have a more systematic way of of, of thinking about things. Uh, where Paul is a preacher who's constantly on the move and going to new places all the time. Uh, so I think Paul of any of the early church writers. Paul is the most likely to have changed his mind. Um, Hello, he used to be Saul. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and we have that. Uh, we have that history with him. Um, you know, it's a, it, and it's common in the ancient world that um, you would have people carry on your work, um, mm. and so someone could have thrown that in as a kind of editorial gloss, maybe a little later saying that like, oh, well, we don't have this in here, but it's in the canon, so we might want to put it there. Um, this for me is what makes biblical scholarship fun. Um, but every time I teach this, uh, I teach it because it's interesting. And I always say the distinction is not between like, uh, you know, regular Paul or Deuteropaul or, uh, you know, uh, 
however it's done. I always say the undisputed letters and the disputed letters. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, I tried it out in a theological argument once and felt ashamed. Well, you know, you're quoting something from Paul in a, you know, in a disputed letter. Um, I, you know, that's, that's an awful argument. <laughs> so, and it is, it's an awful argument. Uh, but it, I think it's really interesting. Um, whether we like it or not, Paul is responsible for more than half of the New Testament. Um, so it's, it's really um, useful to look at, well, you know, how influential was he? Where do we see people moving in different directions with his ideas? Um, where is this influence? But what I, I think the absolute beautiful majesty of God is, is that. Uh, yeah, hold on. Let me finish. Um, is that God has not given us a book that we can tell you everything about. Right. If there are. There are scholars of like great novelists that can tell you what Dickens had for breakfast when he wrote Oliver, when he finished writing Oliver Twist. With scripture, we don't get that kind of clarity. So we get to ask questions and the questions bring us to deeper understandings, which is how I really think God works. God, God, uh, God likes to be, um, God likes to activate our investigatory powers. um, And (laughs) just because uh, we're creatures um, who need something to stand on. Uh, God gives us um, God gives us a clear revelation um, in the gospel through Jesus. So when we when we accept the clarity of who Jesus is, we are more comfortable with the lack of clarity that we get in the rest of Scripture. <laughs> I remember one of my Bible professors uh, tried to explain it. From his viewpoint, as chapter one and chapter four, Paul has his name on those two chapters. And in chapter one, Paul said it was from him and from Timothy. So he was saying Timothy may have written chapters two and three. That's a good theory. Could be. A really good theory. Yeah, that's interesting. I have to think about that one. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah, because these are these are all documents sitting in the files of the church basement. Oh, we got a letter from Paul once. Stick <laughs> it out. Yeah. So you could have, you could, there could have been other scrolls sticking to it. And went, there you go. Yeah. And, and we pieced things together going, you know, what, who does this Mark guy, what, what was his relationship with Paul? What happened between them? And he's one that we know they, they had a falling out. Mark went on, on a mission with him and gave up and quit and went home at some point. So Paul mm-hmm. here, so here we hear, if Mark comes to visit you, Welcome him. We're we're getting back together, okay? And 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 all of this to me tells me Paul doesn't do this alone, right? He's surrounded by these these other ministers of the gospel, these ones who are a part of this mission, and so so are the people uh, that read this letter. They become a part of the mission too, and they have relationships within themselves and with the church at Laodicea. They're all connected, and this word is for sharing. Yeah. Yep. The, the the resurrection is already at work through what is going on in the community. The crucifixion is also at work <laughs> through what is going on in the community as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that every church community bears those two realities together, as we do in our own lives. Um, but we know eventually, uh, eventually the cross will stand empty. 
when the stone will be rolled away and it'll be nothing but the resurrection working in our lives. And um, it's wonderful to use Paul's eyes and to see it as clearly as he does uh, working in the lives of the people closest to him. Well, thank you, everybody, for uh, for going through Colossians with us. Thank you, Pastor Matt, for the wisdom and teaching. And uh, I'm, for one, I'm, I'm really looking forward to our next Bible study, which we will begin uh, in a couple of weeks. And we're going to be learning about the story of David. And uh, a lot of that will be in First and Second Samuel. And uh, we'll hear how Christ fits into that and how do we fit into that, too. So join us for that one uh, beginning yep. on Sunday, February 21st. And let's close in prayer. God, we give you thanks for your holy and precious word, for the mystery of our lives hidden in Christ and for the fullness of God that dwells in him. Thank you for opening our hearts and our minds to hear you speak, for teaching on how we are to live with one another, how we are to share your word of grace and love every place that we go. We thank you for teachers and preachers and for all those who hear and share this word. Thank you for the life that you give us in our Lord Jesus Christ and for the, the amazing journeys and missions and letters of Paul, uh, the disputed ones and the undisputed ones. Continue to teach us and guide us and lead us by your Holy Spirit. Keep us safe this day and the next until you bring us back together again. And as always, uh, we continue to pray for one another in the meantime. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you everybody. Prayers for you. Have a great day, and we'll see you again soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Adios.